to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. In his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, C.G. Jung describes his decision to discover the myth that he was living and his process for this uncovering. Now, tellingly, the title of the chapter in which this occurs is Confrontation with the Unconscious. And Jung goes on to explain in this chapter that he didn't know anything. He didn't know his myth. He didn't know how to approach the question. He writes, I said to myself, since I know nothing at all, I shall simply do whatever occurs to me. He submitted to the impulses of the unconscious. Now, in Jung's case, this meant tending his dreams, painting, and working with stone, which is something that he did his whole life. Now, this aspect of discovery is important. There's a lot of conversation these days about personal myths and personal mythology, and I think it's incredibly important that we are discussing and talking about personal myths. But here's the deal. Whatever you think your personal myth is, whatever you think the story is you're consciously telling, that ain't it. Each of us is in conversation with ourselves and the world in a particular way that is only partially conscious. And creative work, the arts in some form, is often a valuable avenue. Now, if you've been listening to this program, you know that I love poetry And I have often talked about the fact that poetry and mythology are very closely interconnected. So this has led me to a couple of questions I've been mulling over. How is poetry, writing poetry, a way of knowing yourself and the world? And how does or how can writing poetry lead to the creation or the discovery of personally meaningful images? Today, I've enlisted the help of local songwriter and poet Philip Rosenberg. Philip has a book of poetry titled Raised in the Shadow that is a favorite of mine. And he has graciously agreed to explore these questions about the act of writing poetry as a way of knowing self and world by sharing his experience of writing his book of poetry and reading some of his poems. Thank you, Philip, for joining me. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, in the foreword of your 10th anniversary edition, you write that your discovery of poetry brought a new language and vocabulary to express the truth of your experience. So, right there, I'm really interested. What do you mean, a new vocabulary and way of expressing your experience? Well, the poets, I mean, if you think about the poets that I'm referencing, which is uh, Rainier Rilke and um, William Butler Yeats, David White, Mary Oliver, there's something about the way they write in their poetry that accesses something deep. And I hadn't really experienced that before. Um, I could give you a couple of examples of some of the poems that had 
a real big influence on me in that way, and that might be a good way for me to kind of get into what okay. I'm talking about. Okay, okay. This is David White, and the poem is Self-Portrait. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned, if you know despair or can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce fire of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you are willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. I have been told in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God. So that was kind of a revelation for me. And I've heard David White talk about this poem since I first discovered it. And in it, he says he wanted to do something kind of Van Gogh-like. You know how Van Gogh did this self-portrait of himself. Well, he wanted to do, David White wanted to do a self-portrait in poetry. And so he started out with that first line. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, he said the hair on the back of his neck stood up and he knew that he was on to something. So what I mean by discovering a new language is that the way he talks about himself is it's not well I grew up here and then I did this and then I did that he's going into something really in his core and he's using language to talk about it that is um, that's that's almost magical I mean if you think of if you think of poetry as the language of the soul then you go well what could that possibly be I mean, people don't even really agree on what the soul is. Uh-huh. Well, of course, because it's sort of ephemeral. There's something that that's going on for us all the time that is beneath the surface. So are you saying that until you found some poems like David White's that you felt that the facts, let's call them the facts of your life, where you were born where you went to school, your favorite color, all of that, that that somehow those didn't really capture the truth of your life? Is that what you're saying? Well, I didn't. I should preface my answer to that by saying that when I wrote this book of poetry, Raised in the Shadow, in 1997, and this sounds crazy because when I look at it now, it's completely autobiographical. When I wrote these poems, I had no idea in the world I was writing autobiography. And it sounds crazy because, you know, you open it up and the first one is I'm directly addressing my mother. And then there's one where I directly address my sister. And then I talk about my father and I talk about these experiences in childhood. And yet, as I wrote these poems, I never thought of them as autobiography. They were just, they were things that happened to me that I wanted to find a way to talk about. So it's not so much that I wanted to find something other than just addressing the the dates and factual information of where I grew up and all of that. It was just that I wanted to, I just wanted to express myself. Right, you know? right. And I found that by addressing my mother directly in a poem and directly addressing my sister, from whom, by the way, I was estranged, 
was a way to do that. And it created this sort of poetic language because I didn't have to actually, they weren't sitting there in the room with me mm-hmm. and I didn't have, they didn't have, they couldn't answer me. I just had to use my imagination. And that's really what poetry is. It's totally in the imagination. Okay. Would you say maybe that you discovered through discovering poetry that one could have a dialogue with experience and life in a way? I think that's a good way to put it. It was it was a dialogue with my experiences that I couldn't have had in any other way. Uh-huh. You said that you wrote these poems, okay, 1997. How do you feel about them now? I mean, are they is there anything new in them? You mean am I finding something new in the in the old poetry that yeah. I wrote? Is there something I'm finding new? I, I'm kind of astounded actually by my by my poetry from 1997. When I read it, I go, did I write this? And I know I've I heard Bob Dylan talking about when he was, you know, recording song, writing and recording songs like Masters of War and all of that, Times They Are a Change. And he, ta- he says, I don't even know who I was then. I could never write like that now. That was just who I was then. That's what I was doing. And that's what came through me. And there's a way in which that's true for me now, when I look at this poetry from t- nearly 20 years ago now, I go, who was that man? Well, obviously, it, it's me, but I don't feel like I could sit down and write these these poems now. Read us, read us one that's potent for you now. One that's potent for me now. Well, there are several that have that. Here's one that's kind of interesting, I think. Because it's not strictly autobiographical in that sense, but in a way it is. And it's called The Archers. They are moving quietly through the shadows, barely below the threshold of my discomfort. They are whispering, calling out my true name, the one I forgot. They are tugging, insistent, forceful, their firm, dark hands on the blades of my shoulder, turning me first this way and then that. Like an arrow, they aim me with tender, merciless love directly toward the center of my fear. Their exquisite accuracy measured unerringly by the windsock of my resistance. I wrote this in a period when I was really struggling with myself around some things. I was a single parent. There was a lot going on in my life. I was, you know, financially, I wasn't doing well. And emotionally, I wasn't doing well. And it just, uh, I had been introduced to uh, the poet Rumi and to, I'd I'd been in therapy. And it just occurred to me that that maybe the areas in which I was really struggling were areas that I could examine Mm -hmm. and that would be fruitful for me to examine. Instead of me trying to run away from these things that, I found difficult issues around my children and around my my divorce and all of that stuff. Maybe I maybe there was opportunity here, and so I imagined these archers that were in my life that were just aiming me like an arrow. And every time I would try to avoid something, they would take me by the shoulders and turn me towards it and just shoot me at it uh-huh. <laughs> like an arrow. And you know, and so there was this continual sort of engagement with them where where I was given the opportunity over and over again to kind of face uh, the things that I found difficult to think about or mm-hmm. to talk about. 
Okay. And that's what this poem is about. So tell me a little bit then about the process or the experience, as you remember it, you know, of writing these poems. Because you've said they kind of astound you. It surprises you that you wrote them. And you're also saying that there was, this was a particular time in your life when a lot was up in the air. In retrospect, you know, was this some sort of an eruption, do you think? Or, you know, compulsion? Or what, what do you remember? You know, eruption's a good word. Compulsion's a good word. I wrote this over a period of about three to six months, and it, it just came so fast. Everything just came fast. I mean, not that I didn't do some editing, of course, but I. one of the things that amazes me is how quickly these poems came, and they all came from images. You know, the, there was always, some, like the image of the archers, or the image, there's one thing about, I'm talking to my ex-wife about, about something about a flannel shirt. And it, the whole poem started with this flannel shirt just kind of disappearing into the wallpaper. Just, and I have no idea where some of this stuff came from or why it came so quickly. But it was, it was like being in a fever. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear people talk about chan- people who channel. You know, uh, this is the closest I've ever come to something like that where I was just... One after the other, these, I was writing, 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 and then I'd go back and I'd look at what I'd done, and I'd do some editing, and I'd write another one. And this whole book was, you know, less than six months. Okay. Read us the poem of the flannel, with the flannel shirt in it. Oh, okay. This poem is called Vacuum. I think it was 1977 when she first started drinking. Over the years, her once clear mind became soft and dull. Her talk became babbled. But I didn't see it until it was too late, until she'd been completely gutted. Why? It's commonly known the human brain inherently inverts left and right, and is itself divided functionally down the middle. Lesser known, but of far wider implication, is the other great cerebral inversion, that of positive and negative space. When I looked at that person I loved, My brain told me she was still there, within that border of flesh. The reality, as I now know it, is that she left long ago. The outline I saw was created where the familiar background of furniture, appliances, and children meant nothingness. This was my brain's clever and kind way of handling nothingness. Think of it as the emotional analogy to Nature abhors a vacuum. My brain simply rushed in to fill that negative space with hair, a smile, an old blue flannel shirt. But when I tried to touch her, my hand passed right through to the stained walls. One thing that I've noticed about your poetry, and this is true of a lot of poets that I like, but... Uh, your poems don't rhyme. And I don't know a great deal about poetic forms, but I know that even in non-rhyming poetry, there are certain meters and structures. And what makes that a poem, in your mind, anyway? I think what makes it a poem, even though it doesn't... You know, a lot of poetry these days doesn't rhyme. Rhyming is really not in fashion any longer. But what makes this a poem, to me as opposed to just an essay or some other kind of writing, is 
is that it's totally imaginal. You know, yes, my wife started drinking. Yes, this happened and that happened. But when I say that, my brain simply rushed in to fill that negative space with hair, a smile, an old blue flannel shirt. And then, but when I tried to touch her, my hand passed right through to the stained walls. These are not literal things that happened. These are a way of talking about how somebody disappeared on me without, but doing it in, in using poetic language, mm-hmm. using metaphor and using simile and using, using figurative language, language mm-hmm. that is not literal. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that makes it poetry. Mm-hmm. How important were these images to your poems, to the process of writing poems? Well, every one of these poems in this book, and any poem I've written since has that's of any value, has started with some image. Anytime I've sat down to, I think I'll write a poem and think of something I want to write about, it usually doesn't go any place that is very worthwhile. But every once in a while, an image will come into my mind, and I'll try to talk about it, and it turns into a poem. Mm-hmm. So it's critical. The images are critical. Without the images, to me, there is no poetry. And I think that's one of the connections between poetry and mythology and what I call the mythic dimension. Jung and James Hillman and other psychologists whose work I use say that our reality is inherently imaginal. You know, that really everything that we're thinking about and experiencing begins in image. And we're so used to it, and it happens so unconsciously that we don't realize it. But the process of giving form to deeper experiences necessarily involved with image. Yes. We could also say that with poetry, that we're actually trying to say something that can't be spoken. We can't say it directly, and so we use poetry as a way to kind of point at it or kind of move around it in using the images. But we can't just directly say the thing because it's like trying to say what God is. Poetry is a way of speaking about some of these deeper immensities that cannot really be spoken to directly. We're talking about how poetry is inherently images. Is there an image in your book that you find yourself thinking about that still holds some power for you? Um, There is. It's called In the Present Suddenly. Your head is cradled in the crook of my arm, your deep, slow breathing soft against the drip of the rain. Outside, the sound of a car on the wet pavement propels me into the moment. A white door frame stands suddenly against the ochre wall. Sounds are detached, smaller. You stretch across the pillow, your back arched cat-like. I want only to remain here, moving in cognizance through this eternal moment. But I know the truth of it all too well. Soon I will be swept back into the rapids of the clock. This landscape of simple pleasure... This delight of detail will again rush by, blurred and peripheral. Yet this morning, this moment, now, I am here. 
you are here. And God is everywhere, in the lampshade and in the worn brown carpet. And it was the, uh, you know, it was the, the splash out. It was this sound of the car going through this puddle and the sound of the rain falling that just, just kind of took me there. Um, and then this very last image, and God is everywhere in the lampshade and in the worn brown carpet. I mean, that is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, there was a lampshade and there was an old worn brown carpet in the bedroom. And I just looked at it all and it was also perfect. Also perfect. I love your memory of what motivated you to write it. And that it's just one series of images after another, which... You know, going back to Jung again, I mean, that's a big part of his description. And he wrote about this a lot um, in various places his, of his process. And it also seems to describe an experience or a moment understanding a longing that many of us may share, but occur, it came to you in a particular way. And that would be the... that experience of being fully present and realizing the perfection of everything. It's like Yeats's poem of In My 50th Year, right. where he describes the moment of sitting in a coffee shop and he's watching the people go by and he's got his cup and his book and he's suddenly overcome with this feeling of blessedness. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So if writing poetry is a way of getting into this deeper conversation of discovering or uncovering yourself and the world in a more meaningful or soulful way, then there's there's a certain amount of looking back. It's common in depth psychology to connect the movement of the soul with the looking back over the shoulder and the recovery of memory, but it also has a movement forward and contains a seed of aspiration. Right. So I'm wondering, are there any poems in your book that you read or experience as a certain challenge or threshold or vision that you put out for yourself of how you might want to live or what you might want to grow into? There is. There's a couple like that. Oh, okay. Actually. Let's hear um, those. I saw my daughter today, Jessie, and um, maybe that's why this is coming to mind, but there is a poem in this book that I wrote to her of course, she was 15 at the time that I wrote this book. Um, but I had this vision of her as an old woman sitting on the porch in a rocking chair and, and thinking about me and what that would be like. And so this poem kind of started with that image and worked itself backwards. So it's called To Jessie. I found a butterfly wing on the stone steps, deep copper, magic iridescence, tiny yellow suns, a microcosm of nature's perfect attention to detail. I carried it to the truck, carefully placed that delicacy on the dirty, rough seat. It would be a gift for my young daughter, still in her magic, still child enough to see the magic in it. I returned to work, filled my head with measurements, plans, regrets, imagined conversations, the stuff work days are made of. 
It was the next day, biking at the lake, coming around a rocky bend, I remembered the wing. Of course, it could not have survived. Before long, the grit of life will mercifully toughen her skin. Her wonder will retreat to a safe depth and will resurface again only in later years. Some brisk fall morning, drinking coffee on her porch, she will have a vision of an ungiven gift from a busy father. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I have a lot. There's a lot of emotion in that in that poem for me, as mm-hmm. you can tell. I was a single parent, so there were a lot of there were a lot of regrets, and there were a lot of things I wish that I could have been better at and done differently, and been more been a better father, um, less absent, more present. Mm-hmm. All the the things we all really want for mm-hmm. ourselves and our children, and mm-hmm. it just showed up this way. You asked the question if there was if there was any poetry in this book that that expressed where I wanted my life to go, right. how I wanted my life to be, and I interrupted that with reading the one about Jesse. But I'd like to read the one that actually does speak to that, called "Where I Am Going." Once again, clutter has claimed victory. The days have become unmanageable. Small pieces of life are breaking off and slipping through the cracks, lost forever. Appointments are forgotten and keys misplaced. My firm resolve to aspire to the simple echoes now like a distant cannon, firing the first shot of a battle already lost. The hopeful young soldiers of organization, armed with the best of intention, were not overwhelmed quickly, but overcome instead by attrition. They were not defeated in a frontal assault, but rather by a creeping accumulation of camouflaged detail. Noticed too late. Too many dishes in the sink, no time to make the bed, too many impossible places to be, too far to travel in too little time, and finally, a checking account beyond reconciliation. I know the simple life I long for is within my grasp. It lies dead ahead, just beyond this complexity of habit, just over this hill of accumulation. When I have the strength, I will regroup, consolidate, eliminate, rethink. I will have a garage sale. I'll sacrifice everything but a small oriental rug on the polished maple floor, a small oak writing desk by the east window, a vase on the mantel with flowers cut fresh daily from my small but spirited garden. I will make the hard choices. I will undress piece by piece until I am naked, until there is nothing left for the enemy to take. I will count the hours on small Tibetan bells, keep a cupboard with tea and rice. I will keep fresh fruit on the breakfast table and watch the morning light wash through my house unobstructed. I will walk a simple path, unadorned, except by life's own sweet grace. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a uh, it's a poem. It's really full of images that I imagine what I would like my life to be like, mm-hmm. and it all revolves around a simplification and a and an uncluttering. Um, and this is a process you're still engaged in. 
I don't think it's a process that will ever completely end. Mm -hmm. But yes, it is a process that I'm still engaged in. Thank you so much for being here on the program with me today and sharing some of your poetry. I hope that those of you listening can get a sense of this process and the, and the, the conversation that took place in the, the opening in Philip's life that gave birth to this book of poetry and that's still continuing, it sounds like, in your rereading and revisiting of it. It's so fascinating. Well, thank you so much for having me because having written this book of poetry nearly 20 years ago, you know, it sits on my shelf and it's not something that I revisit often. I have many other projects that I'm doing now, including mm-hmm. the songwriting and even writing some more poetry. But but to come, this was an opportunity for me to revisit this moment in my life and to revisit the poetry. And I thank you for that. You know, and that, that brings us back to, to Jung in some ways. One of his gifts, I think, in addition to the example that he set in following the impulses of the unconscious, in his case, as I said, dreams and stonework and painting, is that we give ourselves permission to take that seriously. And that is something that we have to do consciously because we're certainly not encouraged to do that in our culture. And... One of my goals with this program is to give all of you the opportunity to take a half an hour every week and allow yourself to be with your imagination and to take seriously the things that might occur to you in the course of the stories, or in this case, the poems that you hear on this program. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. I hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life.